Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for downloading and giving us a listen today. This is episode number 18 of The Next Track, brought to you by Kirk's book, Take Control of iTunes 12. You can get 30% off the book right now by going to thenexttrack.com slash iTunes. Today, we are pleased to welcome New Yorker music critic and author Alex Ross. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. Alex Ross has been music critic for The New Yorker for 20 years now. Is that correct? Uh, almost 20 years in December, yeah. You've also written two essential books about classical music. The first is The Rest is Noise, and that was 2007. And the follow-up was Listen to This in 2011. You received a MacArthur Fellowship, were nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, that's some pretty good cred. Yes, well, <laughs> I've been very lucky. <laughs> I want to start with a really simple question, and, and we wanted to have you on the show to talk about classical music, obviously, because while you don't only write about classical music for The New Yorker, that's the majority of what you write about, let's just start with a simple question. What exactly is classical music? Well, that's that's the 10000 or $64 million uh, question, or however you want to evaluate it. Uh, it's There's there's the, the, the popular meaning... And, and the real meaning, and you know, the, the popular meaning is um, music of the past, uh, music for the concert hall, music for the for the opera house uh, of the nineteenth century and earlier. Uh, people, you know, are are vaguely aware uh, of the existence of contemporary composers, but it's usually not included in the different definition. Uh, once you see it as a as a living ongoing, ever-evolving uh, tradition, then the definition collapses completely. You, you, you really can't uh, put uh, this, this, this vast range of music into a category when it includes you know, composed music, um, uh, improvised music, semi-improvised music, electronic music, uh, sound art, site-specific installations, etc., etc. You know, this, this, this incredibly huge uh, spectrum of, of music that's being produced right now uh, makes it incredibly difficult sometimes to to decide where does classical music stop and where does say popular music start where does uh, you know the art world start you know the the the, the borders uh, around the uh, contemporary activity are, are very hazy uh, nonetheless we kind of know instinctively <laughs> when it's still classical music uh, and when it's sort of turning into something else uh, but it's it's really interesting how difficult it can be right now to uh, verbalize uh, to articulate uh, that definition in one of our earliest episodes we talked about genres and the way genre were created more as a marketing tool than anything else. And I'm thinking back to the days when I grew up in New York and I'd go into the Sam Goody's on Fifth Avenue and I'd go to the classical bin because it was classical. And probably even then you had the minimalists like Philip Glass and Steve Reich in that bin. But I guess even back then we didn't have the wide range of music that would fit under classical today. Um, I'm thinking of the, the kind of music that ensembles like the Kronos Quartet or Eight Blackbird play that, that are borderline classical jazz, improv, etc. Back then, there wasn't as much, was there? Yeah, I mean, 
Well, I think it's a, it's a question of, you know, what's really becoming visible and, and what's being recorded and what's being recognized, you know, because the whole of the 20th century, you had all this activity, which didn't really fall into the uh, accepted uh, definitions, but it's just become more and more difficult to ignore uh, in recent decades. Uh, the fact that you know what composers do, and that's that's what I think of you know, classical. If I had to define it, I'd say classical music is what composers do. But you know, even even that's a problematic definition because you have jazz composers, you have you know popular song composers, uh, but. But there, there is this lineage. I mean, it is, it is fundamentally about a lineage, but the lineage keeps multiplying and diversifying and going in so many different directions that it's really actually exhausting to keep track of it. You know, my job has gotten more and more difficult as the years have gone by because there's just so much more of it. And, you know, getting into another topic, technology, the Internet, um, uh, it, it's so much easier to hear it, to hear everything else uh, that's happening uh, around the world uh, that, you know, I just sometimes am sitting here feeling I just can't keep up. It's there's just uh, too much. But of course, it's, you know, the, the really number one thing that I do sort of in my job description is to filter out the sheer excess of what's happening and select and and help people to, to focus on, okay, here's a particular composer you should be listening to. Uh, and so yes, <laughs> that's, that's my job. A good example of that is the playlists that you post on your website. Your website is therestisnoise.com. There'll be links to all this in the show notes, of course. And unlike most people who put playlists, which are a song, I'm doing that in air quotes, followed by another song, what you do is you just list albums. And in the most recent one, at the time we're recording, you have John Adams, who's a living composer, Sibelius, uh, who's dead, Robert Carl, I'm not familiar with, is he alive? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Messiaen, who died a few years ago, Stravinsky, Anna Natrebko, and Antonio Papiano singing Verismo. Is that a selection of arias? Yeah, Natrebko singing, you know, uh, Puccini and his right. So 19th century, Darcy James argues secret society. Presumably, that's a contemporary group, and Bartok. So you've got classical minimalism, opera, things on the fringe, and you don't build a wall around the music to keep certain kinds of music out. If I can use a political metaphor, yeah. You know, these playlists, and I guess this is a microcosm of of what I do generally, uh, contain. Some very obvious mainstream, uh, you know, standard definition classical music, uh, and then some music which is uh, likely to be, you know, uh, more obscure to a lot of people, or is is sort of on the on the border of some other uh, genre. A lot of new music, and so I, I I mix the familiar and the obscure, and this is what I do in my New Yorker column. Uh, it goes back and forth from. Uh, you know, uh, opening night at the Met, uh, new production of Tristan und Isolde, to, uh, you know, I just wrote a column about the Vandalweiser uh, group of composers uh, who will be new to uh, a lot of people. Uh, and so that's the, the methodology. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a sort of strategy, you know, not to sort of throw too much unfamiliar material uh, at the readers. Uh, and also, you know, I mean, it, it's, you know, as much as I'm interested in uh, the, you know, ever-changing contemporary 
definition of classical music. I'm also very devoted to the tradition. I grew up with it and, and I want to write about it. And of course, there are obviously fantastically talented performers now who are maintaining uh, and extending that tradition. Uh, and so, I mean, this is <laughs> where the job gets more and more difficult is that, you know, aside from the incredible diversity of contemporary activity, you have a thousand years of music, uh, so much of which is being rediscovered, uh, or people are finding new and seemingly better or more authentic, more um, idiomatic ways of performing, you know, music from 400, 500, 600 years ago. Uh, so the repertory of the past keeps expanding too, uh, as well as the, uh, you know, the, the repertory of the present. Yeah, and, and that's something we saw I'm particularly interested in early music and in, in the historically informed performance movement, which I guess started really in the 50s, but became more common in the 70s, changed the way people looked at that music, changed the way they approached, say, Bach's St. Matthew Passion instead of having 100 chorists, maybe doing it with only eight. But then, of course, you get on into all these doctrinal arguments and you get these, how would you call it, these scholarly feuds with letters and articles and journals and things. And it can get kind of overwhelming for the average listener, even if the listener has a bit of musical understanding, to try and follow a lot of this. Yeah, it is. And the facade can seem intimidating and the language can be dogmatic and pedantic uh, and so on. But the, actually, the music making itself and the early music area is fantastically exciting right now. Uh, there's a tremendous aliveness and spontaneity to a lot of these early music groups because, you know, what they've discovered, you know, they discovered a long time ago, but they, they, they keep sort of perfecting the approach to this question, uh, is that, you know, the score is is extremely minimal uh, in so many cases in, in, the, in the Baroque period and, and before. Uh, it really gives you only the, the sketch uh, of what you're supposed to do with the instrument or with your voice. Uh, and, you know, the scores of, uh, of sort of those prior periods assumed that the performer would fill in, you know, all the gaps. If you just play the notes that are on the page, uh, it will be inadequate. <laughs> It'll be sort of nowhere near uh, what it's supposed to sound like. Uh, you know, it, uh, players are expected to ornament their lines. Singers are expected to ornament. There are, you know, passages where improvisation be, would be expected or simply kind of flavorful personal uh, variation and uh, elaboration. Uh, so, so people have learned to do all that. And as a result, um, the performances have a kind of novelty and and moment to moment vibrancy, which I think is quite different from your standard performance of the 19th century repertory, where everything really is fixed. Uh, in performance right now, the big, big question is, can that same elasticity and and improvisational spirit enter into the performance of Beethoven, Schumann, and Brahms, you know, as well as Monteverdi, uh, Vivaldi, and Bach, you know, can can we have some of that same atmosphere uh, instead of performances, which do seem so fixed and, and tied down. And really, fundamentally, when you step way back, very little significant variation from, you know, one person's Beethoven fifth to another. You know, there can be tempo variations and, and you know, variations of emphasis, but, you know, basically you're getting uh, the same thing. That's not the case when you're listening to, you know, 17th, uh, 18th century music. You know, two performances of the same piece can sound like 
two different pieces, um, and and that's wonderful. You know, I think that's that's that is what we should be doing with the music of the past. Yeah, they, they started with early music in Baroque, and and in recent years, you've seen people like John Elliott Gardner or William Christie moving into the Romantic era as you say. And that's interesting because one of the things they're exploring is different size ensembles. The modern orchestra is basically born out of the need to fill a larger concert hall. And Beethoven symphonies were originally performed with, what, 30-odd musicians? Nowhere near the 100 musicians that we'd see in an orchestra today. I know you're a big fan of, of Wagner's music, which I am not personally. Is there a sort of original performance practice for Wagner? Yeah, there have been experiments. I mean, Roger Norrington uh, made a recording some years back, and a couple of other conductors have tinkered with the idea of you know using um, you know period instruments uh, for Wagner, different brass instruments, different different winds. Um, but there's there's a there's a bigger issue beyond um, you know the choice of the instrument and you know particular choices that the that the conductor makes. Uh, fundamentally, it's about instrumental training, uh, and the contemporary orchestral musician is a highly professionalized, uh, you know, extremely well trained uh, musician uh, who, you know, year after year has, you know, learned an extraordinary level of skill of execution, but. There's also a kind of a standardization which sets in. Uh, you know, it's becoming more and more yeah. difficult to really tell the difference between, you know, uh, a, a player trained in, in America versus Germany versus somewhere else. There's this kind of global, you know, very, very high level standard. Uh, but that very sort of brilliance of execution can stand in the way of someone trying to perform Wagner in a manner that might be much looser, you know, in terms of uh, tempo or, or rubato or going for some more disheveled but somehow more expressive uh, manner of execution. Because back then, you know, just that, that level of training didn't, did not exist. Um, and I think there's something gained and something also lost, you know, when, when we have this, this, you know, highly professionalized uh, music world. And so can we, can we sort of bring back some of the, some of the older uh, spontaneity um, without, you know, losing obviously the, the excellence of performance that we have? We're going to take a break and be back with New Yorker music critic Alex Ross in just a minute. iTunes can be confusing confounding, frustrating. Kirk McElhern has been using iTunes for 15 years to manage his large eclectic music collection, and in his writings for Macworld, where he is the iTunes guy, he explains the common and arcane elements of Apple's music management app. Kirk's book, Take Control of iTunes 12, covers just about everything that iTunes can do, from ripping CDs and converting files to tagging, sorting, searching, and streaming. Take Control of iTunes 12 will help you manage your media, sync to iOS devices, and more. Written in an easy-to-follow question-and-answer format, Take Control of iTunes 12 is the indispensable guide to iTunes. And right now, you can get Take Control of iTunes 12 and save 30%. Get the book now and save 30%. Just go to thenexttrack.com slash iTunes. Save 30% on Kirk's Take Control of iTunes 12 by going to thenexttrack.com slash iTunes. 
So the tagline for this podcast is we talk about the, how people listen to music today. I'm about 10 years older than you, so I grew up in a decade where we were just discovering the Walkman. But technology has changed so much. In your lifespan, how, how much of the changes in technology have changed the way you listen to classical music and the way your readers at The New Yorker listen to and discover classical music? You know, of course, it's changed a huge amount. You know, I, I started listening to LPs as, you know, my parents did. I mean, that's just, it's so interesting about the the sort of pace of change, especially from generation to generation. You know, my parents who were born in the late 1920s listened to music exactly the same way I did, you know, up until age uh, 17, 18. Uh, LPs on the record player, radio, uh, and we went to concerts. Uh, you know, then, you know, I got my first CD player and started collecting CDs. And and so there was, you know, that that period where, where CDs were dominant. Um, and then the internet and the digital era uh, set in and and then everything changed again over and over. Um, and I think how I listen and probably how a lot of my readers, especially the younger readers listen, uh, are, are probably somewhat different because I remain, you know, a lot of the time I'm still listening to CDs. Uh, I do not listen to a lot of streaming music. I, I don't listen to Apple streaming and Spotify at all. Uh, I, I listen to things on YouTube sometimes, and and I do catch a fair number of live streams uh, yeah. of of performances, um, whether it's an ensemble streaming its own performance on its website or radio, you know, BBC Three, Proms, uh, that kind of thing. But I would say more than half the time, you know, seventy five percent of the time, uh, I'm listening to um, to CDs. Um, uh, or, or um, you know, digital files uh, uh, stored on the computer. But, but most of the time it's CDs, and it's just it's, it's my preferred method. Uh, it's my way of organizing uh, the, the new music that's coming in. Uh, you know, there's the near infinity of, of, of music available, um, but if, if I confine it to, you know, my stack of, of CDs on my desk, uh, especially the ones that I've, you know, there are a lot that I listen to briefly and then sort of set aside. There are others that, that I think, okay, there's something here. I want to go back and listen again, or I know it's going to be involved in, in some, you know, ongoing project. Uh, and so there's this, I, I think of it as the listen again pile. Um, and it's actually quite a big pile, sort of dozens and dozens of CDs. But, you know, that's how I filter. Uh, and, you know, that's why my playlists on my blog they're, they're always albums. Uh, and I know a lot of people out there now, you know, don't listen in that way anymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the, in the streaming world, you know, the, the, the unit, uh, album begins to break down somewhat less in the classical world than, than in the pop world, but that's just the way I prefer to do it. Uh, and so I'm probably missing out on, <laughs> uh, on some very, uh, important component of, you know, contemporary listening experience by, by not really spending any time with the streaming services. But, you know, um, a, a lot of the CDs I, I talk about, you know, are also available on, on streaming. So it, it, it all overlaps. Uh, but I, I am a little bit old fashioned uh, in that way that I just I still like <laughs> the album, uh, the physical object uh, as a way of, you know, keeping track of what's out there. But do you feel do you feel that this is a good thing or a bad thing that we have access to so much music so easily. I'm remembering when when I was young, I would get a new, I don't know, Brian Eno album, and I'd listen to it 10 or 20 times before I'd listen to something else. I mean, 
my friends and I, we would listen to an album so much that we would know it almost note by note before we'd move on. And now I even find myself doing this now. Um, I'll listen, I'll get a new Grateful Dead recording and I'll listen to it two or three times and then I won't listen to it again for a while. Uh, this is the big question. It's a big question in every cultural area, in the, in the digital era, in the internet era. You know, is, is there simply too much to, to keep track of? Um, you know, has the, the ease of publication, the, the, the ease of distribution created this situation where uh, we're, we're so overwhelmed <clears throat> with, with possibilities uh, that, that we sort of lose our ability to focus on uh, a single thing. Um, I'm not so sure about that because, you know, in, in, certainly in, in the pop culture area, there's been no drop-off of you know, the sort of fixation on, you know, the one figure, uh, Beyonce or, or whoever it is, uh, seems to, you know, completely take over the conversation in exactly the same way that Madonna did in the 80s and Nirvana did in the 90s. Um, and, and so the fact that there are, you know, a million other artists out there that people could be listening to and talking about, you know, hasn't prevent, prevented people from, you know, uh, uh, going back to the single figure. And of course, you have this discussion of whether in, in the streaming era, you know, first, you know, music on the Internet and then, and then streaming, you know, it seemed as though, you know, we'd have the long tail, everything would be available. We wouldn't have this sort of blockbuster cultural economy anymore. Uh, and the streaming services have really greatly been to the benefit of, of the really mainstream, uh, you know, the, the, the superstar uh, figures. Um, and for everyone else, it's been a very questionable economy indeed. Uh, so, yeah, we go back and forth and back and forth on this question. In classical music... Um, it's interesting. I think, I think actually in classical music, the, the sort of putative long tail model, which, which didn't work out so well in, in other cultural areas has actually happened to some extent. I think, I mean, I think we, we do have a, a healthily more decentered, uh, classical music world, uh, now. Uh, I think, you know, there still are superstars. I mentioned Natrebko and there's Jonas Kaufman and, and there's, you know, Andres Nelsons and certain conductors who are getting a lot of attention. But then, you know, in early music, I mean, I'm just fascinated by in early music, so many recordings by so many different ensembles of so many composers, you know, all these 16th, uh, 17th and 18th century Italian composers uh, who just weren't even talked about uh, 20 or 30 years ago. The, the names are barely known, uh, and, and now they're being uh, recorded. And that's very exciting. There's a kind of diversification of, of the repertory, in, and that goes into the, the, the question of how early music has evolved in such an interesting way. And in new music as well, I think. Uh, you know, fewer uh, superstars, I think uh, a, a greater diversity, diversity, a more localized uh, new music scene in, in a lot of ways. You know, what composers you're talking about will, will, to a great extent, be a function of where you are and, and what ensembles are around you. Well, where you are, if you're in New York or Washington or Los Angeles or Paris or London, outside of those areas, is there a lot of new music? Not, not counting, you know, summer festivals. Oh, sure, there is. I think, um, you know, it's sort of anywhere within, you know, 50 miles of a, of a big university campus, <clears throat> there's, there's going to be 
uh, a new music ensemble. Uh, there'll there'll be a, a group of composers, uh, you know, faculty composers and graduate composers. Okay, that that's that's more specific to the states. You don't really find that here in Europe. Yes, but in Europe, I do have the sense that there are. You know, there are, there are a fair number of really interesting Belgian new music ensembles. Uh, you know, sort of in, in Scandinavia, you have this this tremendous government-supported um, yeah, that's music true. system uh, and, and, you know, composers really being very well supported by, by the government, um, you know, maybe not so much in Italy in terms of new music. I mean, there are plenty of interesting composers in, in Italy, but maybe less of a, of a superstructure for, for new music. But, you know, then Poland, I mean, there's an incredible new music scene in Poland um, and, and not just in, in, in Warsaw and Krakow. So, uh, Canada, Australia, uh, it's 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 a it's a pretty vast world, and and it's not simply about you know the the, the really huge uh, urban centers. So again, technology has it changed the way classical music is performed a lot? That's an interesting question. I think performance itself has changed relatively little. You know, especially in the orchestra world, orchestras are extremely slow to change. You know, they the, each great orchestra has a very well defined sense of what its sound is, what its tradition is. There's this enormously protracted process uh, in terms of you know selecting a new player for the orchestra and endless arguments about you know okay this so and so plays the bassoon very well, but is it our kind of bassoon playing? And and you know that 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 process means that you know. I, I can't say that that you know orchestra playing has has really appreciatively changed in in the past twenty years. Certainly, there's been no influence from <clears throat> changes in in technology. So it's nothing like Mozart in the Jungle. No, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, what what the musicians do in that in their after hours that's an, that's another matter. Uh, but you know the the you know the the on stage performance it, it's 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 very serious. It's very professional and and it's very slow to change in ways that are both good and bad. In opera, I think maybe there there has been some evolution in the digital era, and of and of course there's been a lot of talk about how those met uh, simulcasts. Uh, have have changed production and performance uh, because there has been somewhat more emphasis on the visual component uh, with the the close up uh, camera uh, and so you know <clears throat> when people were simply performing you know for the for the uh, audience there at the Met and for the radio uh, you know what you looked looked like from five feet away <laughs> was of very little significance, uh, but, but now it's a major factor. So you think that actually affects the casting? There has been, uh, certainly there's been discussion, there have been accusations that the Met has been uh, going for the more photogenic, perhaps the less uh, consummately uh, skilled uh, artist. So they want to have fewer fat ladies singing, basically. Yeah, yeah. But the Met, in its defense, has said, no, no, no. We, you know, we still have this, you know, very high standard uh, for vocal performance. And, you know, frankly, you know, 
opera over the centuries, there's always been, <laughs> you know, uh, a, a, an emphasis on looks. You know, I mean, going back to the the 17th century in 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 Venice, you know, the great divas of that period were were noted for, you know sort of the, the, the visual dimension uh, as well as the, the oral one. Uh, and, and so this, is, this has always been a, a factor. Um, but yeah, there's been certainly additional pressure, I think, on the, on the performers. But you know, this is more healthy. You know, they, also, they also worry about their acting. Uh, you know, with, with the camera close-up, they, they want to be more, more convincing, more emotionally detailed in their responses. Uh, and, and I think that has been, you know, all to the benefit of creating a, a more convincing uh, theatrical image on stage. So, you know, again, it's sort of a mixed bag. It's something that's very peculiar to the Met. Uh, you know, other opera houses have tried this kind of broadcast with with very mixed success, usually without much success at all. Uh, and so there was. Well, there are a couple over here. The the, the yeah, Glenbourne yeah. uh, Glenbourne broadcast some of their operas to cinemas. Um, the Royal Opera House in London as well. Yeah, I mean that's you know then the the other big discussion with the Met has been well how has this affected the Met's own box office sales. Uh, and, and I think there's now a sense that, yes, there has been a decline uh, because of the very success um, of, of these broadcasts. Fewer people have actually been bothering to buy a ticket and, and show up for the, for the performance in person. Um, and, you know, there used to be this very heavy tourism uh, you know, especially people coming, you know, up from D.C., down from Boston, uh, from Philadelphia, or just the sort of the neighboring suburbs, coming into the city, seeing something at the Met, seeing a play, doing some shopping, going home. You know, now it seems as though a lot of those people are inclined, if they love opera, uh, just to to stay and, and, and go to the local cinema and, and, and see opera that way. And it's I think the Met has you know, taken a hit uh, financially, uh, ironically, because of the, uh, the incredible success of this uh, initiative. Um, and, and so that's a, a peculiar situation that they, they find themselves in. Uh, um, and, you know, you know, they talk about should there be a, a tri-state blackout, uh, you know, so that so that like know, baseball you know, games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh and it's and it's a it's a quandary for them, but you know uh, there. But that tourism had been falling off anyway, you know, especially since two thousand eight, um, and and so um, the, the 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 broadcasts have have helped to add to an audience that you know, otherwise they found them you know was steadily going away. That's interesting because over here, so I, I, for those who haven't heard yet, I live three miles from Stratford-upon-Avon. So I go to the Royal Shakespeare Company, in fact, went last night to see King Lear. They've been doing these broadcasts now since 2013, since late 2013. They broadcast to cinemas. And if anything, they're probably getting more people coming here. I mean, Stratford is a tourist town. People come because it's Stratford, but people go to New York because it's New York. They've got two theaters, eight shows a week in each theater, a total of 1,500 seats in, again, across the two theaters, and they're not seeing any drop in audience. And if anything, perhaps they're getting a bit more people who see something in the cinema and say, wow, I'd really like to see that live. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that was, and that was what they wanted to happen at the Met. That was what was expected to happen. They thought, okay, we're, we're, expand, we're going to expand our audience and we're going to get, you know, new people, younger people, you know, they, they go to their local cinema, they, they 
try it out. They think, oh, that was a lot of fun. You know, someday I should go to New York and, and, and see it in person. Uh, you know, two problems. First, the audience has not demographically expanded. Uh, and, and if you go to, I think this is not the case outside the U.S., but in the U.S., if, if you go to one of those cinema performances, it's a it's generally a very old audience. Uh, it's actually older than, than than what you see uh, in in the house. Uh, these are you know really traditional, lifelong uh, opera lovers uh, who now find it more convenient to to go to the the local cinema than than to go all the way all the way to the Met. And and you don't see you know the younger people just just trying it out uh, in general. Uh, and the second problem is. Okay, you know, if if there is that sort of theoretical young person who who you know thinks my next trip to New York, you know, I should I should go to the Met. The ticket prices are are so expensive these days. What does it cost for a decent seat at the Met? Uh, for 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 a really decent seat with good sight lines, it's it's well over a hundred dollars. Uh, you know, you, you can get you know tickets for you know thirty or forty dollars. You know, um, uh, all the way in the back or up in the uh, um, the, the topmost gallery. Uh, but uh, but if you if you really want a good look at the action, uh, it's it's a lot more than that. There are deals where you can you know uh, get get a last minute uh, a cheaper ticket, but you sort of have to know the system. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just very different in Europe. I mean, ticket prices are are so much lower generally speaking. Because there's a lot of state subsidies. Exactly. Yeah. So so this is I think the number one thing that all these American uh, classical music institutions are thinking about right now is ticket prices, and it's it's this this huge quandary. You know, to stay afloat, you know, they need to maximize their revenue, and and there is, you know, an audience out there of quite wealthy people who are who are willing to pay you know two hundred three hundred dollars uh, for a ticket to the opera, but they they want a different audience. You know, they they want new people, uh, and they want to to. You know, develop the the audience of the future, um, and and to get those people, uh, they're just going to have to to drop uh, ticket prices, uh, and so now the question is, you know, can we, you know, basically get get donors to underwrite uh, a, a big drop in ticket prices the way you know governments in Europe uh, are able to to subsidize uh, tickets for for students and, and younger people, uh, and so I think that's that's very much uppermost in mind uh, for a lot of administrators now uh, is, you know, they're always looking for you know, massive amounts of money to stay afloat, but but uh, a lot of them specifically want that kind of donation. And it's not, it's not, it's not a, um, it's not the sexiest kind of donation <laughs> that you can make. It's not the it's not the one that you know emblazons your name uh, on the front of the hall. Uh, this is this is something that will be, you know, embedded in in the working of the institution and and you know help help sort of a, a wider audience uh, to to get into the hall. But it's it's a it's a really really important uh, initiative. Yeah, at, at the Royal Shakespeare Company, a large petroleum company underwrites a number of five pound tickets every night. I don't know how many tickets you have to be under 25, as usual, it's, you know, for young people. But I think that's a good initiative because you do get people coming from, I mean, Birmingham's an hour away and people in university there, they can get a bus and come down here and see a play for five pounds, which, you know, it's, it's, it's a very good deal. It's cheaper than a cinema. Yeah, yeah. And you want people to get into the habit of going. You know, it's classical music will not stay afloat if, you know, once a year or once every few years, you know, uh, you know, a typical 
couple decides let's have a night at the at the opera, you know, classical music, and to I think to understand classical music to to really become a fan, you need to go often. Uh, you you need to to sort of you know keep track of of you know what a, what a particular orchestra is doing from week to week from from month to month uh and you know i think in, in the pop world you know people have their favorite artists and they save up and and pay massive amounts of money you know to see Bruce Springsteen or whoever it is uh you know but they 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 don't most people don't go out to shows you know <clears throat> every every week you know certainly not uh shows on that on that uh, superstar level um and in classical music you, you you kind of need to have that that commitment to to really understand what's going on uh and so that's what that's what needs to be developed and and the ticket prices have to be much lower to to allow for that kind of activity Thank you very much, Alex. It's been really interesting to talk to you. Do you have any books that you're working on or anything that we should look forward to in the near future? Well, for a number of years, I've been working on this book called Wagnerism, uh, which is about the big man's influence on the arts and literature and, and intellectual life from his lifetime to the present. Um, and I'm now sort of around the year 1910. <laughs> uh, so I'm creeping forward. I'm writing about The Wasteland at the moment, which has quite a bit of Wagner in it. Uh, and it's a fascinating project, but it'll it'll be a few more years before it <clears throat> reaches completion because it just goes on and on and on in, in, a, in, a, in a really fascinating way. I mean, Wagner had... had uh, there's no composer had had such an impact as as Wagner did on on the arts, uh, on intellectual life, for, in in ways obviously both good and ill. Thanks again for joining us, Alex. Thank you so much. It was great to talk. It's now time to tell you about our next tracks. That's the music that we'll be playing next at home. Before we do, I want to remind you that you can save thirty percent on Kirk's book, Take Control of iTunes Twelve just by visiting thenexttrack.com slash iTunes. Kirk, what's your next track? Well, since Alex talked about classical music and a lot of music that's on the fringe of classical music, I thought I would pick something that is unique, new, contemporary, and probably most of the listeners have never heard of. It's a piece of music called November by Dennis Johnson. It's one of these really long pieces of music. It's almost five hours long, performed on piano by R. Andrew Lee. If you read Alex's article about the Vondelweiser composers, which I link to in the show notes, you'll see that Andy Lee is mentioned both as a pianist and the co-founder of a record label with the extraordinary name of Irritable Hedgehog. He's the only person who performs this work right now, as far as I know, and he released this a couple of years ago on his label. As I said, it's five hours long. It's on four CDs or it's available by download. It's a minimalist piano work, but it's not minimalist repetitive in the way that you think of Steve Reich and Philip Glass. It's quite an extraordinary piece to perform. And Lee himself said, and I quote, my interest was first prompted by an Everest complex, if you will. So essentially, it's you want to do it because it's there. I mean, five hours long, it's something that, that requires a great deal of stamina. I love this piece. It's beautiful. Now, it's not something you can easily sit down and listen to attentively because five hours is a long time. But I often put it on when I'm working as background music, when I work and then I stop and think and I tune into the music again and then I come back. 
Andy, we told me, and, and I'll have a link to an interview that I did with him two years ago. He told me that when it's performed, people are, are free to come and go during the piece because you need bathroom breaks. Though uh, for the performer himself, it's obviously a great deal of bladder discipline required to get through the whole piece. I actually may have a chance to hear this because Andy Lee is performing in the UK uh, in about six weeks, and, and he's playing in a town about an hour from me. For now, what he's performing hasn't been specified. I know he's performing November at several other locations, so I hope he plays this. I'm more than happy to sit in a room for five hours and listen to this performed live, as long as I know I can get out and go to the bathroom a few times. So it's called November. It's a work by Dennis Johnson, and it's my next track this week. So what's your next track, Doug? Well, my taste in classical music is somewhat pedestrian. So rather than picking something uh, kind of plain that might embarrass myself, I'll embarrass myself by picking something really off the wall. It is Bongo Rock by Michael Viner's Incredible Bongo Band. That's right, bongos. They're a percussion instrument. Uh, this album is probably best known as one of the most sampled records of all time. In fact, Fatboy Slim has ripped off pretty much the entire version of the classic instrumental Apache from this album. Uh, there is so much legend about this album, like Ringo is supposedly on it, but I'll leave you to discover that stuff, and you can investigate it. What I like about it is that the sound of the record is so compressed to bring out the bongos, which are featured in every song. It, it really is almost so bad, it's just super great. Give it a try for fun. It, it was actually so reasonably successful at the time of its release in 1972 that they made a follow-up, but don't get that one. This is the one you want. Michael Viner's incredible bongo band and bongo rock is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.